Welcome to the Breaking Into Finance podcast. My name is Craig Thompson, and this is the open source field guide to help you understand everything you need to know about breaking into finance. Let's dive in. Hey, everybody. Today's episode is a very special one. It is the start of a new segment for the Breaking Into Finance podcast. A couple of weeks ago, I put out kind of an open casting call on LinkedIn for folks who might be interested in doing a recorded mock interview, whether it's for private equity or investment banking or kind of any kind of finance interview that folks have coming up. And I got a bunch of responses for that. I'm in the middle of recording a few of those, but today we're going to share the first of those. So uh, my hope with these recorded mock interviews as it relates to the audience is twofold. First, I hope that it demystifies a little bit, kind of like what the imagined other interviews look like. Like, I always felt before I started interviewing people that I didn't have a great sense of how others were doing in these interviews. And I was very well aware of my own pauses, gaps, things I got wrong. And I sort of imagined that somebody was acing all these interviews somewhere. And that really isn't the case. Everybody's human, everybody makes mistakes. And so, First, I hope you know that this gives a better cross-section and better framework for how others are responding to interview questions. And two, I hope that you'll pay attention to some of the really good answers in these interview questions because there might also be times when you think, hey, like I had a really good answer to that. And it might turn out to be the case that you really needed to go a level or two or sometimes even three levels deeper than you did it in the interview. And just because you rarely, if ever, get true direct feedback after an interview, whether it goes well or whether it didn't, we are taking a ton of time at the end of all of these mock interviews to record my feedback where we'll kind of go question by question and kind of overall debrief how I felt like it went. So I hope this is really direct, actionable feedback that you as a listener, wherever you are, I hope you're thinking along with these questions as I'm asking them and then spend some time listening to that feedback section at the end. So I hope you enjoy it. And one, if you are interested in doing your own recorded mock interview, shoot me an email, craig at breakingintofinancepodcast.com, um, or you can message us. You can find us on LinkedIn or on Twitter. And if this is a format that you like, if you want to see more of this, make sure to post a note in the Q&A or just, just shoot me an email as well. Uh, always love to hear that feedback and ways we can provide more content that is relevant and actionable to you. Hey, everybody. Today, we are kicking off a mock interview series, and we have Alexandra joining us today. We're going to do a private equity style full-time analyst mock interview. These are versions of real interviews that I've done before. And just to set the stage a little bit, whether this is a Zoom or an in-person interview, the two fundamental things that you should always have in front of you is pen and paper for taking notes, or if you're on Zoom, if you can have two screens or just like split screen where you can take notes or just something that'll let you kind of do some quick, like either quick mental math or take notes about things that the interviewer is saying or topics that are being discussed. And then a copy of your resume up. Because as Alexandra is about to see, the first question in 99.9% .9 of interviews is walk me through your resume. So with that, Alexandra, Thank you so much for coming in. Can you walk me through your resume? Yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for your time and uh, helping me out. I really appreciate it. But yeah, 
Um, I am Alexandra. Uh, I am a senior at Wharton, trained in finance and BEV, minoring in German, and originally from Moscow, Russia, hence my accent. Um, I have been passionate about finance and exploring economics in general since like high school. Um, and that led me to Wharton. Um, at Wharton, I've taken a few classes and I ended up doing um, a private credit internship last summer. And um, it was very enlightening. I uh, really enjoyed analyzing um, different companies. I like the intersection of numbers and uh, qualitative information. So like, um, how do you figure out the cash flows and why they should be valued at premium? Uh, because this company is like doing better than others. Uh, why is this a good investment? Why is not? And um, now I really would like to pivot into equity from um, credit because I have seen it on one side where credit likes not to lose money and that's the goal to get the return. But I have never been on the other side where equity is looking for high return. But yeah, they do have high risk and I'm interested to see how they balance that out. Can you tell me about a project that you worked on? Yeah. Um, so most of the things I worked were worked on were software deals. Uh, maybe it's uh, specific to the location because I was in LA and well, it's rather close. It's West, West Coast. Um, but yeah, most of the deals I worked on were software. One of them was uh, compliance um, software. So basically they were testing um, how within the company, how, how inside the company people are doing. Um, it's like whistleblower policy, stuff like that. And uh, this company has already been a portfolio company and we uh, were offering them incremental. Well, they were asking and we were offering incremental loan. Um, they were merging with another, they were acquiring another um, also similar type of um, compliance software. I thought that was very interesting because that was the first time I looked at like um, LBO type of deal in real in real life. Um, and also it was incremental. So they already were a portfolio company. Uh, so how do you think about the company that you already lent to and why, how are you comfortable enough with giving them even more money? Um, that's... Tell, me, tell me more about that. Like what were the, what are the main benefits and like, why should you care at all about if it's already an existing portfolio company? Well, if, so I guess this is from more credit perspective. Yeah, that's fine. So the way I see it is uh, if it's already a portfolio company and you lent to them before, you assess their risk and you assessed if you will be able to return to get back your money and hopefully some return on it. Um, and if they're coming back to you as a lender again to ask for more, that could could go two different ways. Like it could either be a good scenario and um, you're going to get give them like more loan and maybe with higher returns and then you can return more. Or they might be coming back to you. Well, in this case, there was a specific reason why they wanted incremental. It was like for acquiring the strategic, it was a strategic acquisition. So it made sense that they were doing it. And I, in our, in my perspective, I think it was a good, like smart decision. But uh, for example, if you have a credit, credit, like a portfolio company and it's coming back to you and asking for more money, but since then they have been, um, decline cash flows, uh, they have not been able to pay interest, or maybe they're coming back to like leverage more and like maybe try to pay out interest. That's 
that's a different picture. It tells you that the company is not, not doing super well. Do you remember if the terms of the proposed new loan were meaningfully different from the existing loan that they had? I don't think that it was the case in this scenario because the company they were acquiring was very similar to them. Um, I think the only difference, oh, first of all, it was like one of the main competitors. So it made sense that they were trying to acquire them. And I, I'm not sure how that ended up going. Do you, do you know what the terms of the loan were um, of this new one that they were seeking? Like in terms of interest rate um, or term or yeah, any, any other details? That's a good question. I think, so I'm not confident on this, but I think uh, terms were like so far plus five because that was um, that was the market rate at that time, I think. And I, oh, and I think this um, terms were like, again, similar to what they used to, what they used in the previous acquisition. Um, so, so far was plus five or like four and a half, something in that range. Um, in terms of uh, leverage, I imagine it was something about six X EBITDA, but I could be wrong. It's been quite a bit, but it's a good point. I should come back and like refresh that in my mind. And then, so let's say their original loan was priced at call it like SOFR plus 5%. Mm -hmm. And this one, let's say it's the same. Let's say it's SOFR plus 5%. In that first period where they first made interest, so let's say this old loan was whatever, from like 2020 or like 2019. Um, yeah. How do you think the interest rate of like what they're actually paying in that first month? Do you think it's the same higher or lower at this new loan at SOFR plus 5% versus the old loan at SOFR plus 5%? So if the interest rate is higher for the second loan rather than the first one? Or just if the spread to SOFR is the same for each loan? I'm just curious if you think the interest rate they were actually paying in 2019 was higher, lower, or the same than today. Um, I think it should be lower because interest rates have risen since then. I think that's the general trend. Which is lower. Oh, 2019 should be lower. The previous yeah. the previous uh, term should be lower in terms of interest rate than now. And I think that's also one of the reasons they did the floating rate rather than like a, um, the fixed rate. So that, Did you see a lot of fixed rate debt? Mm, no, not the deals that I worked on. A lot, no. Maybe one, one deal and like okay. a very old one. Let's talk about leverage ratios just because you, you brought that up already. Um, what what do you see is considered on like the high end for leverage in a private equity deal? Uh, that's a good question. So I would think more than ten x. Uh, Did you see anything that was more than ten x, like at origination? I did not see. Maybe I saw the highest as twelve x, but I'm not very comfortable talking about the deal. I don't remember specifics. I think most things were about like seven, probably eight X. Okay. Um, also, I think it would depend on EBITDA, right? Like some companies are more, um, uh, like more mature, and some are not. So it really tell me, depends. tell me about that. Um, why why does it depend on EBITDA, or, or what do you mean by that? So EBITDA shows you how 
well, it's one of the ways to look how developed the comp how mature the company is. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think the higher the EBITDA, the most probably lower the leverage is, um, because the company again is more mature. Um, that also means all, well, all else equal, I agree with that. Like, if they have some amount of debt and they have more EBITDA, obviously the levered you know leverage ratio is lower. Um, or for those listening, leverage is being defined as debt to EBITDA. Um, and, but but what you said was was maybe a little bit different, which is I I think you were saying that um, as EBITDA grows, then the average leverage of companies goes down. Like for a billion dollar EBITDA business and a five billion dollar EBITDA business, they're both you know in the middle of an LBO. Do you think the target leverage at closing for each of those companies would be different? You know, it's all else equal or 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 why or why not? Yeah, so I think the leverage should be different. Um, and I think that depends on maturity and EBITDA does show maturity in this case. Um, I think the... So the more mature the company, the more probably more stable cash flows are. Um, that's an assumption, but most probably they are more stable. And that means they probably would be able to pay out uh, more debt uh, and like interest rates more like they probably. So you can take on more risk with a more mature company because uh, they have had probably a good history in the previous times of like paying out or maybe good financial performance. Um, and then that's why you could be more comfortable with giving them higher leverage than with less mature ah, company. That sounds like the opposite of what you said before. Um, that's, yes, that's a good point. And I just realized. So, so, so which, which, which version of the story um, I'll give you, I'll give you 10 seconds to think about it. You tell me which version of the story you actually want to say you think is the case. So I one of them is right. I agree with you on one of them. So yeah, it's probably the higher the le so the more mature the company is, the higher the leverage because they would be more. Yeah, they're more credit worthy. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Like the first thing you said, totally disagree with. The second thing you said, which included your reasoning, is it like that reasoning is exactly correct. Like the the larger the company, the more diversified the company, the you know the higher the base is the safer they seem and as a safer company you know creditors should be more willing to lend to them yeah um so um this this might be a little bit of a of a pen and paper question um but let's say you're looking at a potential acquisition at seven times leverage mm -hmm. and the equity debt split in the deal is 60 40 Mm -hmm. Tell me kind of like thoughts on what that means for the purchase price, the implied purchase price. And then is if if you think this is like, like, let's just assume this is like a fair deal. Like, tell me what that purchase price and that multiple implies about the company. Uh, okay. And um, 
you're welcome to take, you know, you know, 30 seconds to collect your thoughts, but also it'll help if you kind of talk through your thought process too. Um, and if you're, you know, you're hitting stumbling rock blocks along the way, I'm happy to give hints too. Yeah. So I will start by, I guess I'll just start by telling you what I'm thinking and hopefully that will lead me to the answer. Okay. So purchase price is um, EBITDA by the multiple, so by seven. Um, the leverage is seven. The purchase price. Oh, that's le- sorry. Yeah, leverage is seven times, and for the for the purchase price of the whole business, it's a sixty forty equity to debt split. So sixty percent equity. Yeah, sixty percent equity. Got it. So seven um, x leverage, meaning that debt to EBITDA. Yeah, debt to EBITDA is. 7x. Yep. Um, purchase price is EBITDA by multiple by some multiple that we'll get to. So equity plus debt is enterprise value. Yep. Um, uh, so 7x is 7x EBITDA is debt, which is uh, 40% of enterprise value. That means divide 7x by 0.4, and that would bring me to enterprise value. Do you have a calculator in front of you? Not a calculator. I'm doing it like. Uh, okay. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll just tell you 70 or 7 divided by 0. 0.4 is 17.5. Thank you. Okay. 17.5. Uh, 17.5 EBITDA is enterprise value. And enterprise value is the purchase price, which means that 17.5 is the multiple that at which we will be purchasing. Um, I think that's on the higher end of mu- purchase multiples. I think the highest... I've seen the summer was maybe 12. It, yeah, 17 and a half is rather large. I remember I was even asked a question like, why did I think 14 was a good purchase price? Uh, 14 uh, multiple was a good multiple. So um, I, w- I would say this is rather large. Yeah, yeah. So tell me, tell me what, like, what type of things might be true about this company is let's say... Um, cause I agree. I totally agree with your characterization. That is like on the very high end of what you typically see in private equity. It does happen though. So tell me what types of companies you might be willing to bid up to 17 and a half X for. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, well, I would think good historical financial performance. You're very comfortable that they have very stable cash flows and they will pay out. Um, I guess I'm looking at this from like a credit perspective still, but um, still anyway, good cash flows because you want to know that they have uh, the money, um, they have cash. Uh, you would think they probably have some competitive advantage that I don't know about right now, but they probably like you're pricing them at premium. So they should be somehow better than their competitors. 
Um, and what is, what is that? What are, what are the two things that being a premium company means or three things, or, you know, kind of like what it, what does that mean to you? Um, like, why does that, why is that worth anything to me as an investor? Well, if it's a market leader, you want more mature company you want, well, not mature, but if it's a market leader, they're doing something better than their competitors. That means they will do better. Hopefully they will do better in the future. Maybe you can sell them for also higher price. Um, but why would they, why would anyone pay the higher price? Like if you're trying to sell them for the higher price in the future? Because they're better than other companies and well, yeah, you're looking for an answer that has something to do with Yeah, that. just like at some point the market will normalize, right? Otherwise it's a bubble. Um so what what are some reasons why that might be true? Let me ask you a related question, which is um do you happen to know what the current trading multiple of Nvidia is? I wish I could answer that, but I would think it's something in the 13 14 type of no higher it's, oh it, yeah it's like over i think it's like at least over 70 it's over 70 seven zero yeah not one seven. Oh, um and it's a public company it primarily trades off of pe rather than ebit but you can calculate their ebit ratio and it is like extraordinarily high wow that that's surprising i didn't know they trade companies trade at that high multiple. Um, yeah. So what, but why do you think that might be true? Like, and, and let me give you an, another example. Um, Uber, I think is either break even or barely profitable. Um, so their P ratio is like, you know, I think it's like close to infinity. Um, they have EBITDA though. So their, their EBITDA EBITDA is probably a little bit lower. Like it's, it's going to be a little bit different, but like, Tell me, tell me about like what do you think like these types of companies have in common that their multiples might be, you know, infinity or really high or just some number that's like a lot bigger than you know twelve or fifteen. Um, maybe it's possible they they can minimize on their costs. Um, another thing, maybe we're already can... talking about EBITDA, so we've already included. The costs, oh, the major costs, yeah. Um, not depreciation, amortization, interest, and taxes, but you know all the other stuff is in there. You're missing the growth. It's growth, yeah. right? Like companies that are growing, like that are doubling every year. Um, you know their multiple can drop by a lot, and you can still make money on it, right? Because the multiple is only half of the equation. There's multiple times the actual EBITDA base. And so if you buy a company for 17 and a half X and their EBITDA doubles, you could sell it for 10 X and still make money. Right. And uh, private equity anyway wants to bid on lower price. Yeah. So that is why, I, I you know, private equity isn't bidding on these type of companies um, yeah. for a couple of reasons. But, um, but yeah, so a lot of the stuff you're seeing is in the lower growth space, but some P firms will pay up for 17 and a half times businesses. And I think you're right that kind of like market leader premium asset is one component of it. But that really means a few things. One is it means it's a market leading platform with an opportunity for buy and build, right? So like you worked on an acquisition over the summer. If you're the market leader, 
it's a lot easier for you to convince other smaller competitors, you know, that you should buy them because it's basically like they're competing against you or they can sell to you. Um, So there is potentially a greater platform for growth, better downside protection, which you mentioned, um, which is to say it maybe is less likely that the number one player, you know, might bottom out and like the investment really goes poorly. And then the third thing is growth is if they're the market leader and there is some opportunity for continued growth over and above the rest of the market, then companies that are going and trading for really high multiples can often grow into that multiple, which is to say you could go know in knowing that you're paying a high multiple, expect that multiple to contract over time and still make money as long as the EBITDA base is growing. Um, and so it's like growth companies is is the thing that that might justify that. Got it. That that's good. Um, taking a step back, putting this example aside, let's say a PE fund um, buys a business for eight times EBITDA. Hmm. It generates zero dollars of excess free cash flow during a five-year investment period. They sell it five years later at the same multiple that they acquired it for. So 8X. Yeah. Could they have made money on that? Uh, Wouldn't it depend on the growth and uh, the relationship of rates to each other? Um. Let's let's talk about that. So one you mentioned one thing, which is they so if they're buying at one multiple, selling it at the same multiple, no change in free cash flow. One thing you mentioned is growth. So yes, if EBITDA is growing, um, then you know the multiple times the EBITDA is higher. Um, so that is one way. So let's also say for this example that EBITDA is flat during the period. Then I don't think they're making money. When you buy the company, let's say there's leverage involved. What's happening to the debt in this example? Debt is reducing. Okay. So let's say now we're selling the company. They're getting their equity, they're growing their equity, and that's how it is. Yeah, they're the the enterprise value is the same, but their slice of the enterprise value pie is larger because there is less debt left over. Um, So there's more for the equity holders. And so the equity slice of the pie can grow as they pay down debt, even if the the pie is is the same size. Yeah, got it. Um, Company A and company B, same industry, same business model, same margin, growth profile, same EVD, but down multiples. But let's say you notice they have meaningfully different PE multiples. What could be driving the difference? Uh, different PE multiples. Yep. Say they have the same EVD, but down multiples, but very different PE multiples. So am I correct in thinking that PE multiple is a uh, price per share to earnings per share? Yep. Or, or equivalently price, you know, like equity value of the company over um, 
net income of the company. Yeah. Like you're totally right that it's price per share divided by earnings per share, but if you multiply it by all the shares, it's the same. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Sorry. Could you repeat the question? I was... Um, same industry, business model, margins, growth pile, growth yeah. profile, all that stuff. Same EBD, but da. But very different PE multiples. And the question is... What why... could be driving the difference? Like, why might that be the case? Okay. So different uh, equity to net income. Well, I wonder if it has to do with the way they count their well i'm not sure if when you say it's the same margins does it mean they account for costs the same way or maybe yeah sure. and even that their costs are the same their costs are the same and so like the way they account for them for example depreciation is the same yeah okay but their equity to net income is different Um, oh, I wonder if it has, and and taxes are, I'm, I'm guessing, are the same. I didn't say that. No. Well, I wonder if that could be, but the tax rate is the same, right, for everyone? That, I didn't say that either. Oh, well, um, I guess it could why, be. Why, why might that be captured in one metric and not captured in the other? Because if you take... Well, EBITDA does not account for taxes. Right. Yep. And does does PE? Uh, well, net income does. Yep. Yep. So exactly. Yeah. So one reason could be that they have, you know, they're in different nations. Yeah. And they have different tax rates for whatever reason. But I wonder, does interest expense, uh, was that the same or is that something else? That nope. Could... That's another one. Yep. How, how are you coming up by with with these couple of differences, by the way? I was only thinking about EBITDA and what it doesn't account for. Yeah, yeah, that's a perfect way to do it. Is is I I, I love the answer to this question. Is like let's look at the numerators, let's look at the denominators, let's talk about why they're different. Okay, um, so we talked about taxes, we talked about interest because those things are excluded from EBITDA and therefore EBD EBITDA, but they're included in PE ratios. What else? I already asked you about depreciation. You asked me about accounting conventions for, oh. you know, for depreciation. But yes, I agree. Those those also count. Um, what what else you got? Oh, what the enterprise. So EV is enterprise value and uh, P is equity. Enterprise value has debt in it. Um, so. Well, maybe there are different leverages, like different. Yeah, yeah, totally different capital structures. Exactly. Yeah, different amounts of debt, different amounts of cash. Um, there could be non-controlling interests um, that impact, um, you know, equity value, but are, um, you know, might reduce the equity value of the public company, but are part of the consideration for enterprise value. Um, yep. So those, 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 that was the other half of the equation I was looking for. Is yeah could be completely different, um, you know, capital structures. Um, cool. Um, last question. Are there, are there any investors or investment styles that you know, or like, or kind of have an opinion about? Investment styles. Um, I have one investor in mind, but I don't think I have a very good answer. Okay. Who's the investor? 
Warren Buffett, but I think it's like a rather basic answer. And I also don't know a lot about his investment style. Mm-hmm. I just know that he preferred EBIT to EBITDA because he thinks that uh, it's important to count uh, to account for depreciation and amortization in terms of cash flows. But that's everything I would know about All that. right. All right. Um, well, Alexandra, uh, I'll close by just asking, do you have any questions for me or about, you know, anything? Yeah, I am curious. Um, I guess this is going to be like very company specific, but um, the company that we'll be interviewing for recently, very soon is going to be HVAC and like manufacturing mm-hmm. type of um, private equity. And I was curious to uh, get your perspective. Why did you choose this specific industry? Why not something else? Uh, are there any interesting insights you could tell me about your recent deals? Um, yeah, things like that. Great. Um, yes. And if I were at that company, I would I would give you an answer to that. Um, yeah. Alexandra, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thanks. Um, how, all right, so we're we're out of the interview now. Now we're debriefing. Um, we're we're talking about how how stuff went. How did how do you, how did you think that went? I think I did not do as well as I thought I would. Um, also, I thought the interview was more conversational than I expected it to be. I think, in my experience, there are more like question technical questions only. Um, I don't think I didn't think uh, the interviewer would be so interested in my experience and my understanding of my experience or like the industry, because I don't know, maybe they all expect that I know the industry. I don't know, but I usually don't get as many industry questions. Um, I thought I understand equity better than I actually did. (laughs) So that was good to know. I've learned a lot. Um, Yeah, and I definitely need to look up the answer to a question, uh, which investor do you like and like their style? I definitely did not expect that. I never thought of a question like that, but it makes sense that someone would ask me. I so um, I'll come back to that, but I, I have a, I have a little bit of a personal story with that specific interview question. Um, <laughs> me being asked it, um, and you you handled it a lot more gracefully than I did. Um, let's start at the beginning, and I want to do a debrief and a walkthrough of how that interview went. First, I think you are absolutely right that in a real private equity interview setting, there will be more pen and paper work to do just as a result of, you know, being on the podcast and having people kind of learn from this. That is a little bit less interesting to hear people say, but don't take this mock interview as evidence that they, there aren't heavy, heavy technical Excel and or pen and paper questions that come up in these interviews. But we did touch on a lot of the types of topics that they would ask you to do pen and paper kind of questions on. Um, First, I thought you did a really good, strong job of the walk me through your resume question because you framed your background, you highlighted a few accomplishments, you highlighted recent relevant internship experience, and you also took time to talk about how that was different from what you want to do now. Um, And you talked a little bit about your interest in having done some stuff on the credit investing side and now interested more in the equity side. Um, For liberal arts majors or folks who might not have 
quite as directly relevant um, academic and or internship experience. One style of walk me through your resume that I liked to use and that I used personally is don't treat your resume as something where you have to talk about every bullet on it. Um, that can lead to really long storytelling. And I thought, Alexander, you did a nice job of highlighting specific things. It was crisp. You went into a good amount of detail, but not too much detail. And then you kind of let the interview proceed. You didn't do like a five-minute monologue about it, which is good. And you didn't say, well, you know, when I was three years old, I, you know, like you, you avoided that, which is great. But for folks who might not have that level of relevant background, I like to organize talking points around the resume where I basically want the interviewer to know three things about me. And for me personally, that was like, I want them to know that I'm quantitative. Um, I have some relevant academic coursework in the space. And I have a lot of leadership experience, which is to say I seize opportunity and work really hard at pursuing things. And so I framed it more of like, we can talk about anything that's on the resume, but here are three things I want you to know about me. And I think that style invites follow-up questions about specific things. And that is one other thing that I think, Alexandra, everything was great. One other thing you could do is you could finish your discussion by highlighting a specific experience that you want to get asked more about. Okay. Um, for example, like you could say, for example, this summer I worked on this one specific software deal that was really interesting because that invites, oh, tell me more about that. And if you don't do that, you might still get a chance to talk about it, but it's more likely that the interviewer will be like, I'm looking at your resume, looking at your resume, tell me about this one. Um, and they kind of one off ask you about a random topic to like, it just exposes you to getting tripped up a lot more easily. And the more you can guide those questions, the better. Um, um, on the question about repeat, I thought, I thought probably, honestly, I thought the weakest section of your interview was talking about your summer experience. Um, I think one thing that interviewers really want to see is ownership of the numbers, because as an analyst, whether in investment banking or in private equity or kind of wherever owning the numbers is the hardest thing and also the most important thing. And so I think if you can just be as crisp as possible about terms of deals that you worked on, about specific, like, I think you did a good job of talking about the business and not saying by name because there's like confidentiality and like other questions about that. There's some kind of complicated etiquette that we'll get into later about like whether you can name drop in interviews or not. But I think you did the appropriately conservative thing, which is like, I don't want to like bias this by like talking about the specific name of the company. Like, I just want to talk about the deal. But if you're not, especially if you're not like name dropping the specific company, you will be expected to go into extreme detail about like, what were the rates? What were the terms? Like, were there any like big negotiating points? Was there like an interest coverage ratio or like a fit, you know, were there leverage covenants? Like were, were, you know, different debt covenant breaches a question? What was the credit rating of the deal if it, if it got a rating from, you know, Moody's or S&P? Um, 
these are examples of some of the types of details that I think show really well because it shows ownership of projects rather than, you know, affiliation with projects. Um, and this is something that I think a lot of people don't know how specific they're allowed to be or should be, but the more specific on numbers, the better. Um, and you can kind of like still live in the cloud of anonymity by not mentioning by name what specific thing or like deal it was, but like being very specific on numbers. Um, I think you were talking about some deals that were like 10 or 12 times levered. Yeah. Uh, those might be some existing portfolio companies that like haven't gone well. Um, nobody is getting 10 or 12 times leverage at entry. Um, like, so either that was a mid life cycle portfolio company that was not doing well, or you were giving me an enterprise value to EBITDA multiple rather than a leverage multiple. Um, so that was an example of like some like hemming and hawing that I think like didn't show or like wouldn't show quite as well. Yeah. Um, the highlight, the number one best thing that you did in this interview is you absolutely crushed the seven times leverage 60, 40 split question. You like knocked that out of the park. That is not easy because you're comparing like leverage ratio over here to like a debt equity split over here. And if you've done this type of work before, calculating the enterprise multiple of the deal is like, you know, it's not particularly hard math, but it combines a couple of different concepts. Like that is not an easy question. And you took like, a, it might've felt like you were taking a little bit of time, but that wasn't that much time and you didn't need any help. And you like absolutely nailed that question. And then the next step further though, of like, what does 17 and a half times mean? You were right, you know, nail on the head that that was a high multiple. And that shows kind of like market knowledge and like a little bit of like experience of knowing that that's sort of a high number. And you've like looked at a couple of deals. Um, then it started to trail off a little bit in terms of like, how do you prove that multiple? I think especially in private equity, it's, you know, it's not what is defensible. It's what would you invest in? And so anytime someone is saying like, what do you think about 17 and a half times? You better have a really good reason for how you're going to make money on such an expensive deal. And so I think we sort of talked through some of those things together about what that, you know, what those you know things might be, but um, being a little bit more crisp there. Um, how companies make money through an LBO, I would definitely recommend spending some more time like doing either like paper LBOs or just a quick and dirty LBO model in Excel yeah. and try changing different assumptions. Like try changing like your interest rate assumption or your entry and exit multiple assumptions um, or your growth rate assumptions and see what that does to the outcomes of the deal. Like see what that does to the IRR of the deal or to the MOIC of the deal. Um, because one of like the, there are a lot of different ways that you can make money in private equity. The three biggest ones are free cash flow that you're making during your ownership. 
debt pay down and like we said, have owning more of the pie and then growing the pie. And then there's a whole lot of ways to grow the pie. There's like, you know, um, acquisitions, there's organic growth, um, and there's also um, exit multiple expansion. And within that, then there's like a whole host of other things. Like if you're buying companies at a lower multiple than your multiple, and you can sell your combined stuff at your big fancy multiple, you're basically getting multiple arbitrage too. So there are a couple of different types of ways that you can make money. Um, but I will put it as homework to you that some are much more meaningful than others. And okay. basically like, spoiler alert, like if the deal is going well, the, you know, a half point of interest or, you know, whatever, like 50 basis points on your interest rate is not going to have nearly the impact on the performance of the deal as 50 basis points of margin expansion, um, you know, or a half turn, um, you know, of exit multiple increase or something like that. Um, so that is one thing I think just like if you can build that kind of like, doesn't have to be fancy, just like quick LBO model with assumptions in Excel and just mess with different assumptions and see which ones lead to kind of larger magnitude exits. Um, I think that'll help you get some more intuition. And by the way, like that's how like real investors think about this stuff is like, there's all of these uncertainties. And so the question is like, what is really going to move the needle here? Um, like it's worth spending all of your time and diligence focusing on things that could kill the company and big value creation opportunities. And if something that like might be this like big uncertain, but like, you know, whatever thing, but like the band of outcomes doesn't meaningfully impact your exit valuation, probably not worth spending as much time on the, so the, the, uh, any investors, you know, and admire. This was a question that I actually got asked when I was a first year analyst. I had a family friend who like worked at a hedge fund and I wasn't like actively recruiting. I didn't go through a headhunter or anything, but I had an interview with this like consumer long short uh, hedge fund, um, D.E. Shaw, like pretty well-known hedge fund shop. And one of the questions this guy asked me was, are there any investors you know and admire? And I said, uh, Warren Buffett. Um, because he's the only one that anybody knows. Um, in general, Warren Buffett is a bad answer to this question because he's so famous. But I didn't ever. I was just like, I don't know. Like, like, I, like if he'd asked me to name four investors, I would have said Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett. <laughs> you know, like I didn't know. Um, by the way, I did not get an offer or anything after that interview. Um, it didn't. It didn't go any further from there. Um, but you actually gave a really nice why. Um, but what I would encourage you to do is basically like if you're looking at private equity or you're looking at hedge funds or venture, like if you're looking at an investing role, this is less true for an investment banking interviews, any investing role, find one or two famous investors in that asset class and talk about what you liked or respected about them. So one example might be, um, and this is like a very famous one, is Robert Smith is the founder of Vista Equity Partners, like the largest software investor in private equity. 
Um, they were also the first and, you know, he's done a lot of really impressive things for a lot of different reasons, but the reason that Vista is what it is today is he was early to the party of recognizing that software companies with recurring revenue were backable with debt. Um, people didn't used to want to lend to software companies because they were seen as high risk. And he basically said, like, let me look past like some of the noise of like tech is growthy and tech is risky. And let's actually look at these businesses. And it turns out that some of the really, you know, the best ones have very highly recurring, you know, contractual revenue um, that's easy to predict. It's high cash flow, it's cash flow positive. We should be able to, you know, do LBOs on these companies. Um, and they've been running, you know, improved versions of that same playbook for 20 years. And, you know, they are probably the single best software investor in the world with apologies to Tama Bravo, I guess. Um, but, you know, we're the first and, you know, among the best, if not the best. Um, that is an example of a really good answer to this question of just like respecting something and just showing some knowledge for the asset class. Um, so I, you know, the Warren Buff, the saying Warren Buffett with no reason is like a D answer, which is what, you know, I did in my one, you know, hedge fund interview. Um, Warren Buffett with a reason is maybe a C answer, but the A plus answer is someone that's actually sort of in the asset class. Um, yeah. It's good to know about Robert Smith because I didn't know that came from him looking at the deals this summer. Again, all of them were software and we all were looking at the recurring revenue and, uh, yes, you mentioned that like most of them are cash flow positive. Some of the ones that we looked were even not cash flow positive yet. And uh, we still were very comfortable lending and like even leveraging them higher than some manufacturing deals. Um, and I didn't know that came from him. That's so interesting to to see. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, the any questions for me was awesome. It evidenced that you'd done some research about the specific firm and the group that you were applying to. You weren't just like, tell me about a day in the life or like, like, first off, if they say, do you have any questions for me? And you say, no, that is an F response. Always, always have some questions ready. Um, if you're drawing a blank and you can't think of anything else, you can sort of ask them about a day in the life. Um, sorry, the only thing worse than saying I have no questions is to ask about work-life balance or comp. Those those questions are like worse than no questions. Um, just like, just sorry. Um, is there like how have you done with like trying to work as little as possible and like make as much money as possible? Um, total red flag. Bad questions. No questions is better than those questions. In the hierarchy of these good, any questions for me? Like unacceptable, but like not great question is like tell me about a day in the life or like. What are some things you look for in a successful analyst? And they'll, you know, they've heard that question before. They have a canned answer. It's fine. Like you won't get deducted points for it. Um, but if you know something about the group, if you know about a deal that they worked on recently, um, or you know about some kind of like headline thing that they were involved in. Um, and related to this, by the way, is I didn't ask you the question of like, why us? Yeah. Like why this firm? Because I don't represent, you know, this is a mock, but like 
expect that question. And the more you can not only know about like stuff that they've done recently, but have like a real reason of like, why, um, like I'm really interested in, you know, in private equity broadly. And I see that you guys, um, you know, a lot of your portfolio companies are very acquisitive and they do a lot of acquisitions. Like, I just like that as a, or like, tell me about, you know, your experience working with portfolio companies or like how involved you are. Like, what do you think of that as a value creation strategy? Like those are like good, why this firm slash, you know, any questions for me, you can ask about those kind of, you can use data or insight you have about the company in either of those contexts. That's good to know. Can I also ask a follow-up to um, your feedback about transactions? Yes. I agree that I was not super comfortable with my previous transactions. Um, so how many deals do you think I should prepare to have to know like numbers specifically on? Because I I definitely can learn one and maybe even three, but I'm not sure. Then I'll start getting confused after maybe three. Um. Any deal that you list on your resume, um, you have to know everything about that deal. Okay. If you have no deals specifically itemized on your resume, then one is fine because you can guide everybody towards that one. Um, you know, or you can basically say, like, I worked on a couple of things over the summer, but I really like spent, you know, the bulk of my time on this one. Okay. Um, that's good. So that's what I would say. Um any words that are on your resume is fair game for double yeah. click, triple click, like lots of deep dive rabbit hole investigation. Yeah, that's that's fair. Good to know. Thank you. Um, but yeah, if if it's not specifically itemized and someone's asking about one, one is fine. That's all you need. Okay. I probably, I definitely have more than one on my resume. I'm going to look into numbers again. Great. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks really? so much for doing this, Alexandra. This is super helpful. Thank you. Of course. It. That does it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember to check out our website, breakingintofinancepodcast.com, where you can submit questions, join our Substack to stay up to date on new content releases, and much, much more. We'll see you next time.